Okay, good. Let's, uh, let's take a look at our Bible. It's open to Matthew chapter 4. And we're going to start a new series on the Sermon on the Mount. And we'll take, uh, I don't know, eight or ten sessions on this. The Sermon on the Mount is a critical... I don't even, that's not even the best way to say it. It is, I think, the critical teaching that Jesus gives us. It's the cornerstone teaching. Um, in a sense, you could say this, that Jesus' teaching is the Sermon on the Mount, and then everything else he does is a uh, supporting teaching on that sermon uh, or an expanding teaching on that sermon. It's that important. I remember several years ago when I began to first look at the Sermon on the Mount and I was familiar with lots of the verses. You know, if you read your Bible on a regular basis, you know, you'll get used to verses and you kind of read them and, and, you know, as you're reading the word, you're, you're almost, you know what it's about to say before it says it. You're kind of there after you've been reading the word for a while. And but I'd really never studied Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I'd never really just slowed it down and gone phrase by phrase and paid attention to what Jesus was really even saying there. I just kind of had, had the catchphrases, you know. Uh, the meek shall inherit the earth or whatever, you know. Or, I mean, there's just, you know, there's just a bunch of them that you can pull from there, you know. Enter by the narrow gate. I mean, so I had sort of the phrases that I was familiar with, but I'd never stopped to pay attention to what does this thing really say? And so, to be quite honest with you, uh, it's 2006 that I really began to look at this in a, in a serious way, and I was completely undone. I mean, I can't, I can't, I couldn't exaggerate it, what happened. I, I began to read what Jesus lays out in the Sermon on the Mount, and I realized I'm not even close to this. I'm not. It's not that I'm off a little bit and I've got most of it down. It's most of my life is perpendicular to what Jesus laid out here. And uh, I mean, I'd been a Christian for something like 18 years at that point. And, and you know, thought of myself as passionate and and fiery, and pursuing holiness, and, and then when I walked through the Sermon on the Mount real slow, you know, sometimes you just got to read it slow. You know, we, we like reading the Bible in a year, or the one-minute Bible, or whatever, but we should take, you know, we should take chapters and spend months and months on them. And uh, when I slowed it down, and I began to read this thing real slow, and allow the Holy Spirit to begin to deal with my heart, uh, Man, I was just undone because I recognize I'm not, I'm not even close to this. I'm not, I'm not, it's not even that I'm not close to it. I wasn't even familiar with, with the truths under it. I, I knew the phrases, but I didn't have the truths in me. And that was a, an eye-opener, and it continues to be an eye-opener. And uh, this week while I was away, I just, I read through the Sermon on the Mount several times, and and I've written a little book on the Sermon on the Mount, and it's just, I'll just say this, when you've written a book on a subject that you recognize that you're not actually living 
at the level of what you've written, that'll just convict you bad right there. And uh, so I just, before you go, hey man, I've, I saw you a couple times. You're not really, I, I, I know, I know, I know. I'm not really there, but I, I want to be. And, and, I, and it resonates with my heart. And uh, I'm more there now than I was five years ago. And hopefully in five years, I'll be able to say I'm more there now than I was 10 years ago. But uh, I'll just say this. When you've written a book on a subject and you don't, you don't truly have the actuality of it, man, it will do something to you. And it, it did it again to me. So I, I went back and I've read about half my book again. And I went, man. First I went, man, this is really good. And then I went, man, this is really bad. Because I was like, these truths are rich, but uh, I recognize I, I personally have to grow in them. And, and, and so I want to just, I'm going to start off our, our journey into this thing just by saying that. I know that this is something I'm personally trying to grow in. So I don't stand here and say, I've got all this down and, and you all all have to get it down to. That's not where I'm at. I'm standing here and I'm saying, this sermon that Jesus gave, it's the cornerstone teaching of his teaching ministry. Everything else either uh, expands on it or supports it. And this is the key teaching that we are to derive our lifestyle and our value system from as Christians. And so if that's the case with this, it, it, it deserves a long look. We've got to pay attention to it. And we've got to allow this word to stand over us and to minister to us and to, to change us. And the challenge becomes this, that we, we tend to be very familiar with our culture in, in, in the world and even our church culture in the West and what we tend to think is whatever our church culture is that we're used to has got to be the biblical culture or the biblical value system. And then when you read the biblical value system and you find out, wow, this is not even the value system of much of what I've understood in the church, then you're, 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 you're in a blessed place and you're in trouble. Because you've got a decision you have to make. Am I going to go with the word even over what's accepted even in the church? Come on. And so then here's the other thing. When the value system of the world is so far. I mean, you, could, you can virtually go through the points of the Sermon on the Mount. And point after point after point. The, the, the values that Jesus lays out in the Sermon on the Mount. The norm uh, for, for, you know, Western lifestyle, the value system in the world is completely opposite. And when you are living in a culture where the value system is, I mean, fully at odds with the value system that Christ prescribes, that just tells you we need the grace of God, the working of the Holy Spirit. We need the agency of angels. We need the moving of the power of God in our lives. Beloved, so the kingdom can come in here. We pray a lot for the Lord to release his kingdom and power in the earth and for revival and all that. But let me, just, let me just start us off with this idea. If the kingdom hasn't come in our own hearts, it's not going to come in our communities. That's just a pie in the sky. And I'll tell you how we can, we can identify whether the kingdom has come in our hearts is taking a look at the Sermon on the Mount and seeing how much this value system and, and this lifestyle that Jesus laid out is actually 
happening in us and how much, how much it's, those truths are actually manifesting through us. So I want to emphasize that this sermon is incredibly important. And I want to invite you, well, like I said, we'll do eight or ten weeks. I want to invite you to begin to read it and study it with me over these next eight or ten weeks. <clears throat> I want you to begin to read through it and take it slow and allow the Lord to begin to minister to you. And so you find the text of it in Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7. And we will spend quite some time developing the thoughts there. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to just give an overview, an outline, and, and just touch on some of these pieces to sort of get us pointed in the right direction. Now, I like to pick up the story when I'm dealing with the Sermon on the Mount. I like to pick it up in Matthew chapter 4. And you're familiar with Matthew chapter 4 because it's after Jesus was baptized and he comes back and he's, and he's immediately led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil in the wilderness. So he goes through the temptations, and it's right after that, in verse 17, where we see Jesus start his, his ministry, his public ministry. And so it says, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now that's a familiar phrase, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's familiar because it was John the Baptist's main message. That was the key thing that John the Baptist preached. Now, that's a pretty high mark for John the Baptist when, when the Son of God shows up behind you and not only does he agree with what you just said, he actually rips your message off and preaches it himself. That's pretty good. Pretty good. And so this little message and this... This isn't an expository sort of teaching. Jesus had one message he preached for some time until crowds gathered, and then he gave his first public exposition at the Sermon on the Mount. And so this little message, though, it's, it's got to be understood because it's a game changer. The repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand is a game changer, and it's a preparatory instruction, and here's what it means. We understand repent. Repent in its, in its kind of clearest, truest form is simply change your mind. Change your mind. Now that's interesting. The Son of God and his, and his main prophet show up and the very first thing he says is, you've got to change what you think. The culture, the value system, the lifestyle that's around you, you've got to change your mind because I'm about to tell you some stuff that doesn't go with that at all. How much more, if, if Jesus had to say that to them in the first century, how much more is that the message for us today? We've got to repent. We've got to change our mind as to what we think is reality and allow the word to dictate to us truth. So he shows up, he says, change your mind, which will change your ways, you know, there is a way that seems right to a man. But the end of your own way will bring death. It seems right. But the end thereof is death. He says, change your mind. Repent. It's not the way you think it is. And here's why. 
The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now for Jesus to say the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that was a... Uh, that statement was a massive statement. For John the Baptist to say it and for Jesus to, to, to uh, affirm it and to repeat it, that statement was huge and here's why. It's a Jewish idiom. He's using an idiomatic phrase that describes not just there's kingdom stuff happening and kingdom things or, or whatever. He says it's at hand. Uh, the, way that the, the way that the Hebrew language works is this. If you're going to say something is in front of you, you'd say, or if, it's, if you'd say it's coming before you, you'd say it's at the face. If you'd say it's in the past, you'd say it's at the back. If you wanted to say it's right here happening with you right now, you'd say it's at the hand. And so when Jesus says the kingdom is at hand, what he's saying is this. You Jews have been believing for the messianic reign of God's appointed leader. You've been believing for that, for the kingdom age to come. You've been believing for deliverance from Roman imperialism. You've been believing for the Lord to initiate his kingdom here and now. And what I'm telling you is the kingdom is at hand. This changes everything. We're not simply uh, waiting now. We're actually in it now. The thing is starting now. The inauguration of the kingdom is now. And what they were going to have to find out was two men with the same message. The first man was going to point to another, but the other man was going to say, and I am him. The first man was going to say, there's one coming after me. And Jesus says, I am he. I am the king that God has appointed to release the kingdom rule on the earth now. That statement, beloved, is a, I mean, a radical statement. It would throw half of them into unbelief, half of them into faith. It, I mean, it was a divisive statement but so definitive as to what Jesus was doing. So he goes, change your mind because there's a kingdom coming and it's here right now and I'm bringing it and it's not the way you thought. And isn't that the truth? I mean, didn't we see that when, when Jesus was crucified? They said, if you're a king, then come down. You know, if you're the son of God, then call legions of angels. They expected him to come as the conqueror that he's prophesied to come to come as in the second coming. They didn't understand that he was coming as the servant that he's prophesied to come as in the first coming. So they, his point to them is you've got to change the way you think because the kingdom is here right now. I'm bringing the kingdom and it's not what you thought it was. Huge statement. So what does he do then? From that time forward, he goes around, and and you can read it in Matthew uh, chapter 4, from verse 17 through the end of the chapter there, through uh, verse 25. He preaches one message, that's it. Repent for the kingdom is at hand. And he does signs, wonders, miracles, incredible deliverances. And and basically, he's, he's through that power ministry, 
He is defining, I should say it differently, he is supporting the statement he just made. He does all the powers of the kingdom to, to prove to them that this statement he's making, that the kingdom is, is at hand, is real. And so what happens is multitudes get healed, multitudes get delivered, paralytics are now walking, blind are now seeing, deliverance is happening in mass, but he's only preached one message. The kingdom is here, you got to change your mind if you're going to be able to receive it, and I'm bringing it. And then he would do massive signs and wonders and miracles. Well, what happens is this. In verse 25, it says, Great multitudes followed him. From Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. I mean, all over that Middle Eastern region, there are mass numbers of people hearing about this new prophet who is healing the sick, cleansing the lepers, uh, you know, opening blind eyes, opening deaf ears. And he's got a massive following. And so what does he do? He waits until everybody's interest is peaked. He's such a, Jesus is an incredible strategist. Fully flowing with the Holy Spirit and fully strategic. It's just like on Pentecost. He waits till everybody is there from all sorts of surrounding regions. And boom, he releases the Holy Spirit. I mean, you have the flow, full flow of the Holy Spirit with fire and power. And it's this most strategic day, Pentecost. Uh, and so you have multitudes gathered there. So here it is. He's done the signs, wonders, and miracles to get a, a stir among the masses. He's outside of Capernaum, and he walks up one of the mountains there outside of Capernaum, and he sits down, as is the manner of, of Jewish rabbis of the day, and he begins to teach. When the multitude's interest was piqued, then he begins to explain the kingdom. The kingdom is here. You've got to change your mind. That's what he told them. And finally, when he's got, the, when he's got everybody sort of salivating, because so, so, tell us about the kingdom, then he releases the Sermon on the Mount. I love Jesus. He's so cool. He's just smart. And that's what you get in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So where he was saying, change your mind, now he's going to tell us what the changes uh, are. He's going to explain what the difference is. He's going, what he's going to do is, he's not going to necessarily release new teaching. What he does in the Sermon on the Mount is, he goes back and he, he identifies some of the key teachings of the rabbis of the day and the historic teachings where they've been teaching the law without the Holy Spirit's uh, anointing and interpretation. And he, what he does is he takes the false stuff and he corrects a whole bunch of it. He, and, he, and he says this phrase, he goes, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. He says it six times in Matthew 5. And what is he doing? He's retooling the way they thought. He goes, change your mind. Here, let me help you. And he begins to identify different you know, key teachings that were just, they were just off. They, they were not fullness. They were, some were scripture, some weren't. But they were the main, some of the main things that the Jews believed at the time. And Jesus comes and, he, and he's, by Holy Spirit revelation, releasing truth where they hadn't understood it before. So I want to give you a little outline. If you're taking notes, just a very simple outline of the Sermon on the Mount. I'm trying to give you a tool 
so you can study it. And I'm going to give you the three chapters in five points. That's it, five points. Now, I won't teach it in five points because that would be impossible. But I'll give you five points for your own study as you're looking at it with me over the next several weeks. So here's what we have. Matthew 5, verse 1 through 16. He gives us the values. Matthew 5, 1 through 16 are the values. The kingdom values. Then Matthew 5, verse 17 through 48 are the corrections. It's where he says over and over and over. You've heard it said, but I say to you. So chapter 5, 17 through 48 are the corrections. Chapter 6, the whole chapter, 1 through 34, it's the lifestyle. Here's our value system. Here's the corrections. Now here's the lifestyle we're going to live. That's Matthew 6, 1 through 34. And then Matthew 7, 1 through 23, he gives us cautions. Judge not. Enter by the narrow gate. Beware of false prophets. That's Matthew 7, 1 through 23. They're they're the cautions. And then Matthew 7, 24 through 27, that's the closing. Chapter 7, 24 through 27, that's the closing. Where he gives the, the statement of the centrality and the necessity of not just understanding the Sermon on the Mount, but actually living it. Actually living it. Now, you'll, if you do any studying on the Sermon on the Mount, you'll find different opinions about what it's supposed to be. Some see it as a high bar that, you know, when you read it, you're supposed to be like, kind of pierced through and you go, obviously I'm not living it. I could never live that. And there's the standard and I'm not doing that. Uh, I don't think that's right. I don't think it's a standard that Jesus is not expecting us to live. In fact, within the sermon, he actually calls us to live it. And so what I see it as, and what many other scholars see it as, is not simply a high bar that nobody can attain to, but actually the expected lifestyle of, of those that are in the kingdom. The expected lifestyle of those that are in the kingdom is the Sermon on the Mount. Now, when you, when you grapple with that, uh, it, will, it should deal with you. Because automatically you'll look at this lifestyle, you, you should, and then you'll look at your own lifestyle and, and, oh my, when you look at this lifestyle in the Sermon on the Mount and we look at our own lifestyles in the West, we come to find out there's a great disparity between the two for most. All right. So he's setting the stage for everything he's going to do in his ministry. He's setting up the value system. For all those that would be subjects of the kingdom, for for how they're to live, the values and the lifestyle. And he's establishing his value system as the norm. That's been the question. 
because you've got to change your mind. There's a kingdom at hand. So the question is, so what, then what is it? And here he goes. He's going to give it to us. All right, so let me work through this simple outline, and then we'll just, we'll just do an introduction today. And then um, next week, we'll start working through the core values, and we'll just see where the Lord takes us from there. So uh, verse 1 through 16, I said those are the values of the kingdom. And what you have there are the really familiar uh, eight Beatitudes. Pretty much if you've been around uh, church at all ever, you've heard the, the term Beatitudes. And I remember being in um, Sunday school uh, as a young man, and they had this thing on the wall, and it said the eight Beatitudes. And I went, what are a, what's a Beatitude? How do you... What, they beat that into you. What is that? And it had the list. And, and, you know, I just never understood that. And I remember somebody later saying, be attitude. And I went, oh, like, is that a word? Is that the attitude you're supposed to be? Like, I, I just not, not a term that I, I really ever connected to, not even as an adult. And, and here's what you got to understand about those eight beatitudes. Just like any leader would do, especially any governmental leader, When Jesus begins to explain the value system of his kingdom, he just lays out the eight core values. And that's what you have there. Those are the core values of the kingdom. When we we see the Beatitudes, just realize these are the core values. And so when he begins to work through those core values, poor in spirit, meek, those who mourn, and when he begins to work through these things, It doesn't take very long to realize that these core values are not the norm uh, for, for most of us who live in the West. But here's the thing. These core values are the essential values of the kingdom of God. They're not only the values uh, for the kingdom, they're Jesus values. In other words, these values are what Jesus likes and what he's like. And so when he gives us the core values, what he's doing is he's giving us an on-ramp into relationship. Because if you'll live the core values, then what you'll end up doing is intersecting with his own heart. It's what he says is important for us, but it's what he deems important personally. The values are not simply the value system of his government. The values are the value system of his own heart. The character of this kingdom is the character of the king. Does that make sense? And so if we're living the the values that are found there in those first 16 verses, we're living a value system that is Jesus' own and it's near and dear to him. But then the alternate is true. If we look through these, these values and we find we're not living these hardly at all, then the alternate is true. We're not living by his own values, nor are we living by the values of the kingdom. And I'll tell you, I, I mean, this is where I just got pierced five years ago because I began to work through it. I go, okay, all right, here we go. Value number one, poor in spirit. And I went, okay, I know that phrase, but what does it even mean? What does it even mean? 
And I remember going, okay, how can I live a value if I don't even understand the phrase? And I just, it's this, I just, it just started to just undo me. I go, let's try another one. Blessed are those who mourn. Mourn. That, and I just, I literally, I went, that didn't even sound like Christianity. We're supposed to be blessed and happy, not blessed and mourning. I, you know, when I go to church, I want to leave happy. That would be blessed. How are you today? Blessed. <laughs> I, this doesn't sound right. When I, I mean, I just looked at it. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. And I remember going, I, I remember when I first started, I go, what is meek? And, I, and all, all I could think of was meek sounds like weak. <laughs> it, it doesn't sound like anything I want to be. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And I began to, I remember, I began to really look at that. I go, hunger and thirst for righteousness. And, and what I realized was, most of the time, anybody had ever quoted Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, they always quoted it in a revival context, context saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for God. But it, it, it says it differently. It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Getting up in the morning and craving a righteous lifestyle. This is not about getting some touch in some revival meeting. Though I love revival meetings. That's not what this is about. This is about craving a a lifestyle of, of holiness that causes you to be beautified inside and out. Living the righteous requirement of the kingdom of God. A craving righteousness, hungering and thirsting for it. Beloved, this is not the how close can I get to the line because grace covers it version of Christianity. This is, oh, the line's over there. I'm going to get as far away from it as I can because I'm hungering to be righteous, to live righteousness. I started looking at these things. I was going, I don't. I'm not sure that I do any of these. I can I'm, just be honest. I look at them today and I go, I'm not very good at any of these. Blessed are the merciful. Well, mercy means somebody's done you wrong. I'm really good at forgiving the, the repentant, but I'm not really good at forgiving the one that deserves judgment. That's mercy. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. That, beloved, we usually quote that about the issue of perversion and morality and what you put before your eyes, but he's not talking about what you put before your eyes. He's talking about what you put in your heart. He's talking about what the motivations are inside. What's really motivating us? Pure in heart. And blessed are the peacemakers. That's not passively not dealing with conflict. It's actually going into conflict and just like Jesus laying your life down as the Prince of Peace did to bring peace. And then he goes, blessed are the persecuted. 
Blessed are the persecuted. Reading through this list, I realized, man, I've got to get a whole new definition of what blessing even is. Because I would say blessed are those that get a big financial something, something. Or a free meal at the restaurant. Or blessed are those that, who, you know, fill in the blank, get some goodies from God. He goes, no, blessed are you when they revile you, when they persecute you, when they say all manner of evil against you for my name's sake. Blessed are you. Blessed are the persecuted. So I just, we're just going to give an altar call right now. Everybody wants the blessing of persecution. I'm just going to pray for it to come on you. <laughs> Beloved, these are the values of the kingdom. We're going to go through them in depth in, in, a, in a week or two. It's, it, it's uh, praise the Lord. The oven will get turned on. So there's the values. And he goes through and he explains that our light has to shine. You don't put your light under a bushel and... And he explains that we are to savor the earth as with salt. The point is that the value system we're to lead is supposed to be completely contradictory to the value system that the world lives. Now here's the problem. When the church and the world have the exact same value system that we just brushed it up and put Jesus' name on it, start using Christian language, I'm telling you, something is really, really, really wrong. And, for, and furthermore this, you can't just get a building, get some music going, put some people in there, Call it Christianity and have a contradictory value system and imagine that that's the kingdom of God. It's not. (laughs) That's serious. So when you look at this value system, and we'll go through it in detail, but you, you look at it and you go, well... If I'm living that value system, I'm living the value system of the kingdom. If I'm living another value system then I'm not living the value system of the kingdom. So therefore, what value system am I living? And if I'm not living the value system of the kingdom that I say that I'm a part of, then what kingdom am I in? Hey, that's not just a good preaching point. That's reality. We, we really got to deal with this and allow these truths to transform our way of life, our value system. I don't care what it looks like on Christian TV. I just, I just do not care. I don't care what it looks like anywhere else. If it doesn't look like what this looks like in the scripture, we've got a problem. If it's not poor in spirit, mourning, meek, hello, hungering for righteousness. If it's not these things, merciful, peacemaker. If it's not these things, persecuted, we have a problem. It's an alternate value system. All right, the next area in the outline, he goes and he gives these corrections. And as I said a minute ago, he says six times, you have heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, but I say to you. And he deals with the issues of murder and and lust and, and, and covenant and and letting your, your word be your word. Like that one right there. Let your yes be yes. Let your yes be yes. I mean, that goes into every area. That's from, you know, from punctuality to making a promise. He says, don't swear. 
Why don't swear? Well, at the, at the core of it, and we'll go into it in detail later, but at the core of it is because your word should be as good as any oath. That's what Christians are supposed to be like. If you say it, it's done. I'll do it. You don't have to swear and promise and I promise, I swear. Double dog dare, cross, crisscross. What are my boys? Are, they got these things. Cross it and circle it and double dare, no touch back, dare back, black, touch back. I don't know. But there's all these, we do all these gyrations to prove to people that our word is true. We sign contracts and get law. You know, just keep your word, believers. Yes, be yes. Let it be yes. And if your yes isn't yes, that's a problem. That's an area we got to change. We'll go through this in detail. So he's correcting these things. He says, let your yes be yes. Don't swear at all. They, they were taught they could, they could swear and, and do these oaths and, and invoke different things and heavens and earth and gold in the temple. And he said, that's, none of that's good. He goes, I don't want any of that. I just want, my, I just want those in my kingdoms to say it and have it be that way. How, how refreshing would that be, beloved? Imagine that. If every Christian you ever talked to, if they said it, you knew you could count on it. Done. Well, that, I mean, everybody would want to do business with Christians because they always give the word and they always keep it. I've talked to some business people. I've got a few in my family. They prefer not to do business with most Christians. Come on, you know why. Because you expect it to be a brother deal and it ends up being some jacked up mess. I mean, we gotta, we, we've got to get this thing right. So he's making these corrections. He's, he's reinterpreting the law by Holy Spirit revelation. He's, he's going through standard teachings that they believed that they were they, they just had all wrong. And he's giving the, the, the right spirit and the right mentality that believers in the kingdom are supposed to be living by. And he gives this, this incredible statement that when you read it the first time through, you, you almost just fold under it. It's verse 48. He says, Therefore, be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. And at that point, you and I, we read it and we just... We go, okay, it's impossible. <laughs> Nobody's perfect but God. I can't be perfect. End of game. But right there, when he's saying that, he's actually talking about love. The issue of love. And he's talking about loving others. And he says, you've heard it said that you should Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But Jesus gives us the kingdom value on love. He goes, but I say to you, love your enemy. (laughs) Love your enemy? Yes. Wait a minute. I'm having a hard time loving my fill in the blank. (laughs) My spouse, my son, my, you know, family member. I'm having a hard time. Yeah, Jesus wants you to love your enemies. Well, in Christ, we're not to be an enemy to anybody. 
So he's talking about those that have put you as the target. You know, you don't walk around going, I, that, that person's my enemy, that person I don't like, I hate that one. No, that's not even, we, that's so far out of the value system. What he's talking about is the guy that's got your name in the crosshairs. Your face is the, the dartboard. He goes, the guy that has your face in the dartboard, love him. Now, love doesn't happen just in word. John, the apostle, encouraged us to love in deed and in truth. It's kind of like James said, he goes, I'll show you my faith by my works. John said, I'll show you my love by my deeds. So if you're going to love an enemy, that means with a free heart and a, and a kind spirit, you go and do something good for them. And that's loving as God loves. That's the key to the compelling. That, that's how you can, you can be compelled to live the value system on, of the, 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 the Sermon on the Mount. But when he says, be perfect as I am perfect, it's perfect in love. It's in the context of this conversation. Because you've heard it said, you can hate your enemies. He goes, I tell you, love your enemies. He goes, if you do that, you'll be perfect as your father is perfect. He even loves his enemies. Is this, I'm in the Bible, right? You guys are looking at me like I'm in some other book. It's called the Bible. It's Jesus. It's in red, right? In your Bible, is it red? So it's read in my Bible. You guys feeling this? It's, do you feel how different sometimes our version of Christianity is? Beloved, we're just getting started. We haven't even, we're sort of scratching the surface. I'm reading headlines. So he gives these corrections and he, and he deals with these different areas Keeping your word, retaliation, love, hatred. He, he deals with all of it. And he's fixing what the Jewish rabbis had improperly taught. They'd added to the law compromises so that they could look like they were living the letter, but they had departed from the heart. And beloved, we are not much different in our day. We have sort of the basic look of Christianity down. We carry our Bible to church. We say, bless God, praise the Lord, amen, at all the right places. We listen to Christian radio and watch Christian television. But the issue is, do we have love that costs us something? Do, do we have words that you can count on? Do we have a lifestyle that declares Jesus. So then Matthew 6, after he, after he deals with a few of the corrections, and this is not, here's the thing you got to know about the Sermon on the Mount. This is not the exhaustive list of do's and don'ts. This stands in contrast to, to the Ten Commandments. This is not about the list. This is about the lifestyle. 
You, you got to get that point. It's not about the do's and don'ts. This is about the way the heart will respond when love has taken residence. And this is about the value system that Jesus prescribes for us to attain to. We don't strive in, in human works. It's by the Holy Spirit that we have the, the Lord come and, and convict and change our heart and empower us by grace and compel us by love. And we look at this prescribed lifestyle and we say, yes, I want it. Yes, I want it. And let me just say this to you. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he really makes this really clear in his teachings on the Sermon on the Mount. He's one of the, the key uh, expositors of the Sermon on the, on the Mount. He says this, if If you find yourself reading and studying the Sermon on the Mount and you go, oh, dear God, I'm not even close, but I want to be. He said, that's that's good evidence that you're in the kingdom. But if you find yourself reading the Sermon on the Mount and you find yourself repulsed by it and you go, that's just too hard. I don't want to do that. He said, then you really need to reevaluate which kingdom you're in. And so we look at these things and perhaps our hearts go, oh, whoa, I'm not even close. But there's a desire to live the values of the kingdom. Oh, I tell you, beloved, he'll give us grace. He'll, he'll compel us by love. He'll convict us so that we can disagree with darkness and, and agree with light. But we can't reject the Sermon on the Mount or what's worse yet. A lot of times what we'll do is we'll read the verse because it seems so tough. We just reinterpret it in a way that's easier. Be perfect, design perfect. He goes, ah, it doesn't really mean perfect. It means, you know, you got to try it, just try it a little bit. No, no, it actually, he didn't stutter at all. He said, be perfect as your father is perfect. That's where we're heading. Perfect in love. Filled with all the fullness of God. That's what he's, that's what he, he's calling his bride to. That's what he's calling all the subject of his kingdom to. And that's not a new thought, beloved. That, that's the first sermon that he preached perfection in love all right so matthew 6 now what we get are lifestyle virtues and again it's not the uh exhaustive list it's the it's the normal stuff that will be in the lifestyle of one who is a subject of the kingdom And so he goes through and he tells us serving and giving and prayer and fasting and forgiving and living simply, living simply, living simply. Some of our teaching on, you know, just, you know, you you give to get or you get a hundredfold return or you just, you know, Believe God for, for this style of a car so you can, you know, I, I remember I heard one, one guy, I just, I, I, I couldn't, I just, uh, and he said, um, he goes, listen, that wasn't a very good sentence, was it? But he goes, if you don't have the money to buy the Lexus, he goes, you just fake it till you make it, baby. He goes, go ahead and get that loan and just fake it till you make it. Well-known TV guy. I, I mean, I just, I, what? If you don't have the money to, you know, this is what he said. If you don't have the money to get the wardrobe that says success, you just fake it till you make it. Just run your credit card up and you fake it till you make it. I, I, I was like, that is, that is a direct opposition 
to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, don't lay up treasures for yourself on earth where moth and rust corrupt, where thieves can break in and steal them. He goes, that's not the point of this life. Laying up treasures for yourself isn't the point. Live simple. And when I see statements like that and I see believers believing things that are in opposition to this value system, beloved, you gotta know my heart trembles over this. We need to tremble and we need to groan and ask the Lord to release repentance. To calibrate us, to plumb line us. That we would resonate with his values and not another. That we would live his lifestyle and not another. So he goes through and he says, serving, giving, prayer, fasting, forgiving, simplicity, and trust. Because the key issue for worrying is trust. And he goes through it. And I, and I love these, these uh, virtues that he calls us to. And the beauty of it is this. The, the point of living any of these. I, I, Matthew 6, is, it's just a, it's a masterpiece. Because he goes, here's how I want you to live. And I don't care if men know about it at all. He goes, do all of it for your father in secret. He goes, this is the lifestyle, but don't do it for a religious badge. Don't do it to look like Mr. and Mrs. Super Spiritual. Do it for your father in secret. And your father who is in secret, he will reward you openly. It's all for the Lord. And so the point becomes this. The compelling agent of our heart to live the lifestyle of the kingdom is to bless the Lord with a lifestyle that's an offering and to love the people that he loves. That's why we live this lifestyle. To bless him. Every time you serve, he likes it. Every time you give, it blesses Jesus. When you pray, when you fast, when you forgive, when you choose to live simply, regardless of what the sway of the world is, it blesses him. Beloved, that's what it's called when when he says, you're a kingdom of priests. He's talking about our whole lifestyle is priestliness to his heart. We're always blessing and serving him through the righteous choices that we make. In Matthew 6, the compelling agent is this. You do this lifestyle, why? To love him. To love him. It's as much worship to choose to live this lifestyle where you give and you serve at the expense of yourself as it is to sit there with your hands raised and your eyes closed saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. Because you're not doing it for the religious badge. You're not doing it for the approval of the leader or to look like Mr. Spiritual. You're doing it for your father in secret. And oh man, you've got to believe when he says, your father who sees in secret, he'll reward you openly. See, a lot of people, they think, well, yeah, everybody's gonna find out how spiritual I am. I did all that. That's not, you'll never get found out in this age if it's according to the values. It's not about this age. You live serving in secret with no accolades. With nobody high-fiving you. 
You live, you live giving in secret with nobody celebrating how spiritual you are. And you do it for the Father because you love Him. I love you, Father. I'll serve, I'll give, I'll bless, I'll forgive. Look, you don't forgive somebody because it makes you feel good. You forgive somebody because it blesses God. You don't forgive somebody because you feel good. You forgive because it blesses God. You live a lifestyle of receiving no accommodations, no accolades, and the Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Beloved, there's coming a day when the Father's going to look at you. He's going to look into your face. And deeds that you've forgotten. All sorts of moments that you chose righteousness and the lifestyle of the kingdom rather than your own personal preferences. He's going to bring all of them up in front of the grandstands of heaven. It's not just your little circle here on the earth. He's going to bring them up in front of the myriads of angels and the company of the redeemed. Billions upon billions Innumerable companies. He's going to reward you openly. You know what? I promise you, you do not want the earthly accolade of some person who is simply dust with the spirit blown into him. You do not want that. You know why? Because he lays it out here. He goes, don't be like the hypocrites. They blow trumpets and they give their prayers long at the street corner. He goes, I tell you, they have the reward. Because when you pray, do it to your father in secret. He'll reward you openly. There's a day coming. He's going he's to resolve every account. He's going he's to reckon to every man according to his works. That's not just a, it's not just a scare you kind of verse, though it's got a tremble on it. It's a beautiful verse. Because if you live in secret to the Father, oh, there's a day coming. There's a day coming when all heaven will commend you for a life laid down, a life lived in private to God. Beloved, oh, for the the beauty of that day when the Father who sees in secret rewards openly, but oh, for the pain of that day when believers will stand having worked their whole life for the praise of man and the Lord looks at them and everybody knows them, he knows all their works and the Lord looks at them and says, you've already had your reward, bless you. A lifetime of misservice, Lord, what do you mean? He goes, you did it all for men and not for me. The lifestyle is for the Father. It's for the Father. We love others for the Father. We serve others for the Father. We give for the Father. We fast, we pray, we do it not to try to get Him to love us because He does. And then chapter 7. And he goes through the cautions. Judge not. I tell you, just about every, 
Just about every person in compromise knows that verse. You're judging me. Somewhere it says in there, judge not. Jesus wasn't saying, don't ever do judging. Because later, it goes on and he explains, judge with righteous judgment. What he was saying are, he was giving the parameters to judge. When he lays out the parameters to how you actually apply judgment, it's always merciful to the person who's in, 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 in the in situation and always strict upon yourself. It's Paul's teaching. He said, when you see another who's caught in any trespass, he goes, restore him in a spirit of gentleness and tenderness, looking to yourself, lest you also be tempted. That's a totally different way than we handle uh, Christians caught in sin. You see a Christian caught in sin, usually we, we crucify them publicly, and we excommunicate them, and you never hear from the guy again, and see ya. He goes, no, there's a different way to do this. So he says, don't judge. He says, enter by the narrow gate. He goes, it's a narrow gate in a difficult way. It's not this broad way. This broad path. It's narrow. Grace is free and the invitation is to all. You don't, you don't perform to get in. He said, but once you say yes to the invitation, you're going to walk through a narrow path. Grace has opened it and empowered you to walk in and walk on it. But it's not going to be this wide open thing. You can just do whatever you want. It's just fine. It's a narrow way. A difficult way. Not a lot of people are going to like this way. This is the way of the kingdom. It's truly the way that Jesus said we're to walk. A narrow way. A narrow, a narrow gate, a difficult way. Then he gives us uh, details about false prophets. He says, beware of false prophets. Uh, that, I just thought, you know, you're going to give us the foundational thing of your kingdom, but you're going you're to talk about false prophets. And he gives that, that kind of scary teaching many will say, to me, Lord, Lord, in that day. And, and you read through that and you go, well, I don't understand really what this is. The whole thing, beloved, we'll go through it in detail, but I'll just say this. The whole thing is about those who parade to be Christian proclaimers, Christian proclaimers. This is not false, you know, worshiping other gods. He said, you're gonna, they'll say to me, in my name, we did many works. The whole thing is about those that are supposedly in the church using Jesus' name, but don't have intimacy with Jesus. That's stunning. It's a real caution. And then finally, the closing. And let's just look at it, and we'll close with the closing. Verse 24, Matthew 7. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. 
And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Now here's the thing. Oftentimes you'll hear these verses and they're applied to the whole of Jesus' teaching, which I think is fine. I think you can apply this to all the things that Jesus taught. But Jesus, in context, is not actually applying this to the whole of his teaching. He's actually applying it to the Sermon on the Mount. Whoever hears these sayings, the ones he just gave, he's finalizing the Sermon on the Mount by saying, whoever hears this stuff that I just said and does them, living the lifestyle. He says the one that hears it and does it is a wise man. The one who hears it and does not do it is a foolish man. Now here's the thing. He does not say, if you hear it and do it, no floods and no rain will come. He says, whoever hears it and does it will be like one who's built his house on the rock. But whoever hears it and does not do it is like one who builds his house on the sand. Both houses will get floods and winds and rains. That speaks of the manifold trials and challenges of this life. Everybody will have trials and challenges. He goes, the key is if you're hearing these sayings and doing them, your house will be built on the rock and that house will stand in the time of trial. But the house that's built on the sand, it will fall. That is so critical. That's so critical. The way that you are to traverse the storms and the challenges And the hardships of this life is through living the lifestyle that Jesus prescribed in the Sermon on the Mount. It is the answer to standing through the storm. Shipwreck will come if you do not live this lifestyle because trials will come. Trials are sure. The question is, how do we live through them? This value system, this lifestyle, is the one that God in the flesh tells all those that are a part of his kingdom that they should live in order to make it through. It it really doesn't get much more important than that. That's how you get through this life. These are the values. This is the lifestyle. This is the kingdom of God. It is narrow. We're not the only group. I'll tell you that. There's millions across the earth that are living this and they're really living it. You just go outside of the borders of the United States and you'll find plenty of believers that live this and and that you go, how are you guys living simply? And they go, of course. Y'all meek and you talk to them and you just, you, you melt because of how humble they are. I'll just end with the one story and, and we'll be done for today. I, I, when, when we hosted uh, Brother Yin and, and, and uh, a couple of those pastors that were from China a few months ago, and I found myself in the room, and, and, and at first we didn't have a, an interpreter back there with us, and it's Brother Yun 
and these two other brothers, and one guy had a million people in his church network, and the other guy had four million in his church network. And they looked to be about my age. And I'm, I'm talking to them, and, I'm, and it's, I'm just, it just seems impossible that they could be leaders of that stature because they're so humble and normal. They don't carry an air of anything. They're not expecting anything. And I sat there and Brother Young starts singing to me. He gets this far from my face and starts teaching me a song in Chinese. And he's <laughs> smiling. And I'm sitting there and I can't communicate with these guys and they're singing me the song in Chinese and I'm looking around the room and I'm thinking, I never in my wildest dreams imagined this would be what it's like to meet modern day apostolic leaders of this stature and it be so normal and so humble. I mean... We're just not like that. I just, I was, I was so struck because I've thought this often, but it was one of those moments where you just totally realize, you go, you know, you think to yourself, now this is real humility. Because there's not an air about them. They're so kind, so humble. They were trying to get them to tell me stories of these exploits where, you know, the one brother was in jail and he was beaten near to death. He thought he had died, but what happened was he woke up in this cloud and, and, and then he heard these other inmates around him and they were cussing and he thought, well, I'm, where am I? I'm not in heaven or don't cuss in heaven. And what happened was the glory of the Lord came on him and the power of God came on him. He was beaten near to death, but the Lord resided on him with glory in the jail cell. And all these men were completely in shock as they watched the glory of the Lord descend on this man who they'd beaten mercilessly. They all get born again. And what happens is for the next several weeks, every, they have to put him in jail cell after jail cell because everybody's getting born again. Because what would happen is he would go into the cell, they would put in the new inmates, and the glory of the Lord would rise in the cell on this man. And they were trying to get him to tell me the story. And he would just, he'd just smile and look down. He, just, he acted like it wasn't, he wouldn't even, he, wouldn't even he, he finally said, yes, that's what happened. But he wouldn't even, he wouldn't even hint at the story. And I said, well, what, why? And the interpreter said, she goes, oh, he doesn't want to talk about himself. Come on, if you had the near-death glory of the Lord experience, you'd be like writing a book, newsletters. You'd be on the Christian circuit. And it's that, you know, it's a moment like that where you realize, you look around the room and I'm sitting here with these men and I'm going, what am I, like, first of all, what am I even doing in here? And then secondly, I go, I know what humility looks like but I don't have humility because it looks like these guys, they've got meekness and meekness is just something that I want. And we've got to come to grips with that a bit that really we desire to be meek, but most of us don't really have meekness. 
and all for the day that we actually live humble. Not as, not as something we're trying to do, just, it's just who we are. Sermon on the Mount lifestyle is rooted in meekness. It will call you to the lower place It will call you to get less in this age. It will call you to put off all your preferences for the benefit of others and for the glory of Jesus because that's the way Jesus lived in this life. It's the value system and the lifestyle prescribed by God for believers and it's what we must embrace. It's what we must embrace. And in the grace of God, ask the Lord to deal ruthlessly where there's areas of contradiction in our own hearts. Amen? Amen. Let's, let's stand. Let's just go on a journey. Let's go on a journey into the Sermon on the Mount. I'm, I'm, I'm in good pain right now. It hurts so good reading this stuff this week and studying it. If you want to go on that journey, let's just, let's just come forward. Let's, if you say, Lord, I want this. I want this lifestyle. I want this value system. I see areas where I, just, I need grace. Just come forward. Let's just pray for a moment together and ask the Lord to forge these truths in us in a real way. If this is the value system of the kingdom, and it is, it will be the value system of this community for sure. It must be. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Here we are, Lord. Here we are, Lord. Here we are, Lord. We want to live this value system. We want to comprehend your values and make them our own. So Lord, I pray, blow across us with a convicting wind. Let truth, the truth from the word of God, let it become so apparent to us. I pray you put a plumb line in our soul that would, it would calibrate us with you, Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn. They shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. They'll inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful. They shall receive mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are the pure in heart. They shall see God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Theirs is the kingdom. We want these values, Lord. We want this lifestyle. Give us grace. Draw us in, we ask. 